We are going to shift our attention this morning to uh, the, not only the text, but the topic that we're going to be looking at. We are in the midst, or actually the beginning of a series entitled Elephants. And uh, one of the things I failed to mention last week that I wanted to kind of start off with this week is we know that uh, this is about a dialogue. It's about a conversation for about 10 weeks or so that we're all engaging in. And uh, in order to have good dialogue, there has to be questions. And uh, so here's what we're going to do. We've got a, uh, a phone set up, a little text. The phone number will be up on the screen. At any time, if you text this number, we will record the question. At the end of the series, we're going to answer as many of those questions as we can up here on a Sunday morning. All right? So what we'll do is we'll just keep recording those. We don't necessarily have time to talk about whatever question you text right away. There might be a Sunday where that happens. But at the end of this series, the goal is to, uh, to really wrestle through some of those questions. So, at any point, I'm not going to yell at you, pull out your phone, that's fine, text away, uh, and send it to this uh, number, and we'll make sure to record it and then answer that question later on in the series. Alright? Got it? This morning, we are talking about the green elephant. The elephant of money. I know uh, it is one of the favored topics in the world, I'm sure. But the topic of money. Now, the question might be asked, why money? Why did we land on that particular topic? I went back through all of my notes over the last five years. And I looked back on what is it that we talked about when we gathered as a community. And sometimes, what you don't talk about is as uh, profound as what you do talk about. And so while there were lots of conversations we had on discipleship and mission and calling and purpose and who we're supposed to be and the character and the qualities, you name it, we dig into all kinds of different passages of Scripture. We've talked in five years once on the topic of money and giving. One time. And that was about four years ago. that we talked on it. And so sometimes, like I said, what you don't talk about is as profound as what you do talk about. And so it is an elephant here at New Community. We tend not to talk about the topic of money. And if we do, the closest we get is to talk about the value of generosity, where we kind of encourage all generosity, an aspect of that being money. Now, while New Community has in some ways ignored this topic of money, Jesus, however, in the Scriptures does not. About 15% of everything that Jesus talks about, all of His sermons are about the topic of money. Obviously, for Jesus, our kingdom perspective of our resources is vitally important to our discipleship. But there are, in my opinion, many elephants when it comes to money. So we're going to try to address several of these, but this is something I hear a lot about is money. Over the course of the years that I've been in ministry, I hear lots of or I engage in lots of conversations about money. And here are some of the phrases that have either been said to me or that I've overheard related to the elephant of money. All right, here's just a few. Does giving have to be 10% or am I required to tithe? Another question is, Giving 10% is an Old Testament law, but is it a New Testament responsibility? 
Are we only required to give what we've decided in our hearts to give, or is it something else? Is there some requirement? I've heard the phrase often, I can't give. It's impossible for me to give. Another one is, God desires a cheerful giver, and I'm not cheerful. (laughs) True, true. And last but not least, giving is a private matter between us and God, so why are we even talking about it anyway? Why talk about this particular elephant? The list could go on and on. I mean, I've heard so many phrases, and I'm sure you have heard or said so many phrases yourself. But this morning, what I want to do is talk more about the elephant that lies behind the elephant. I want to talk about the elephant that lies behind the elephant of money, and that is really our posture toward money. I'm convinced that there is an elephant that is much greater than these questions that we ask or these things that we kind of debate, and it's really our posture toward money. I've heard it said that the greatest sin of American Christianity is the way we spend our money. Let me change that phrase. I would argue this, that one of the greatest sins of American Christianity is our acceptance of greed. That what is the way of the culture has subtly become the way of the church. That we find that we as the American church have begun slowly to accept a posture of greed. Most of you know greed is that excessive desire to acquire possessions or items that one does not necessarily need or even deserve. And that desire, Jesus talks about in the Scriptures, in fact, He says, don't let your life be about greed. The sum of your life is not the total of your possessions. And yet, our culture says that in everything we're supposed to do, it should be bigger, more, We supersize everything. For example, we supersize our food. Here's a little picture. In 1950, seven ounce drinks, 3.9 ounce burgers, and 2.4 ounce fries. Today, 32 ounce sodas, 12 ounce burgers, 6.7 ounce fries. Just keeps getting bigger. You used to have to pay more for supersizing. I think they just give it to you, it's the standard. All right, keep going. Houses. Oop, one screen goes. Check this one out. Um, the average size of a household in 1950 was 3.37 people. How they figured that out, I don't know. But they lived in 983 square feet. Today, the average household in about 2010 is 2.53 people and live in houses that are 2,438 square feet. There's statistics that show that the average income of a person over a period of time doubled in America, and yet happiness, that same desire for things, decreased or maintained the same. Here's another picture for you. There's a new wave. You see them creeping up all the time. Storage. I love mini storage. Now it's just big storage. What used to fit in your house or your closet had to move to your garage had to move to your driveway, had to move to your second garage, and then you realized it couldn't fit any longer, so you went, oh, mini storage. And then we, no offense to anyone who owns one, but really, we just keep acquiring more. There's the need, this obsessive greed for more. Here's uh, the latest. Check this video out. 
This might resonate. It is kind of funny how people react when the new iPhone comes out. Some people actually get mad. Why would they make another product? I desperately want to buy those bastards. It's almost as if the new iPhone somehow ruins the old iPhone, but it doesn't. It's, it's all in your head. In fact, we set a camera out on the street today, and we told people outside to check out the new iPhone 5, which is unavailable so far. So in reality, they were, what they were looking at is the current iPhone 4S that everyone has. And, well, here's how that experiment played out. The new iPhone 5 just came out today. We want to know if you'll take a look at it. Tell us how it compares to the last iPhone. I'd love to. Oh, it's way better. Yeah, it's nice. That's definitely noticeably better. It's a little, a little thinner. Looks like the screen's a little bigger. Seems a little bit faster. Yeah. Faster, lighter. Feels uh, heavier. Feels heavier? I think so. A lot lighter than the last one. It's a lot faster as well. Mine's going to take forever. So this one's faster? Yeah, definitely faster. Right on. Oh, it looks very nice. Very nice, very updated. Oh my god, it feels a lot lighter and just more, um, just a lot higher quality. And it's got, um, if you drop it, it looks like it's not going to break. Like this one has a million times. The screen is clear, HD. Colors are brighter. Oh, it has a video front and back? Mm-hmm. Video front and back? That's cool. This doesn't have that. So you like it better than the last one? Yeah, I have the 4S. Yeah? Yeah. I'm always open for a new phone. <laughs> yes. There's a tendency in all of us to say what's the latest, the next, the greatest, the best. That's kind of the way we live because that's our culture. This morning I want to speak into that idea. Let's turn in our Bibles, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture, three verses specifically, and my goal is to just walk us phrase by phrase through these three verses. We want to look at what the Scriptures say regarding our use of money, our posture toward money, our desire for money. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, it says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So I just want to go phrase by phrase. The first phrase is this, as for the rich. As for the rich. Now this is, for some of us, perhaps the hardest part of this entire passage because there is in all of us a desire to say, this passage must not be for me. It's not speaking to me, it's speaking to the rich. That's not me. I mean, Paul's speaking to a group of people that were very rich, and so certainly my initial knee-jerk reaction is to say, this one's not for me. When I was uh, working on this particular talk, my daughter, who's two, her name's Evie, she came up to me and she stood next to me and I said, Evie, you're rich. And she said, no, I'm Evie. Right. She's got that down. She figured that out. 
But initially, right, we all have that knee-jerk reaction. No, I'm not rich. That's not me. No way. I can't be. This is the part of the talk where what we would want to do is to give you all of these facts to prove that you are. Right? There's just that tendency. And you've, I'm sure you've heard most all of them. I won't go through many, but the idea that 8% of the entire world owns a car. The other 92% look at you and go, you must be rich. The fact that you turn on the faucet and out comes clean water. One billion people in the world today would look at you and say, what a luxury. Or, you're going to eat today, I assume. Most of you will. 800 million people won't. And they'll look at you and go, you are rich. And yet those statistics go in one ear and out the other. And the reason I believe they do is because we don't compare ourselves with the 90% of people. We compare ourselves with the top 3 to 5% of people. We shift our attention and we begin to look at those that have more. And so we suddenly say, we're not rich there was a conversation that happened several years ago. There was uh, this group talking about wealth and about riches. And one particular lady who owns a house, an indoor tennis court, a horse stable, and a private plane said to the group, I'm not rich. To which the question was asked, well, what is rich then? Rich is not even having to think about your money. That's what rich is. Let's take a little poll here. I'll ask you two questions. Full audience participation. Ready? First question is this. How many of you have change in your ashtray in your car? Raise your hand. Keep it up. Keep your hand up if you know how much is in your ashtray. Okay, how many of you have a jar where you toss money in it at home? Maybe a little container. How many of you know how much is in that jar? Keep your hands up. Not very many, right? See, only rich people have the luxury of having money lie around and not even knowing how much there is. We have to admit, right from the beginning when we look at this passage that what Paul is doing is he's addressing us. As for the rich. And he says this, As for the rich, charge them. Charge them. Charge, very simply, is a command. It's a command. Paul's not giving out suggestions. He's not counseling. He's not saying, hey, this is just my opinion or something to be considered. This is a command. What I'm about to tell you is something that you need to hear. You need to be instructed in it. And he says, this is the charge. That God's people should not be haughty nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Here's the first posture I want us to look at. There is a posture that either has us leaning toward God or leaning toward greed. We either lean toward God or we lean toward greed. That's why the Scriptures speak to the idea that you cannot serve both God and money. 
Why can you not serve both God and money? Because money has a power. It has this ability to change our allegiance, to corrupt us from within, to begin to change our affections, our desires, our confidence away from God. One could even make the case that in American culture, money is probably one of the greatest substitutes for God in our society. That money is one of the greatest substitutes for God in our society. If you look, even in New Testament times, when Jesus began to have conversations with people, He's mostly converting them from their resources to Him. See, Jesus understands that the idol of greed, the idol of possessions, the idol of things, you have to be converted from it to be converted to Him. Look over and over. He comes up to the rich young ruler. What must I do? He says, give everything you have and then come follow me. And he leaves sad. He says to his disciples, the poor, they come. The rich, harder than getting through a camel through the eye of a needle. He talks to Zacchaeus. Right after he says, you come down, he goes into the part where he says, listen, it's about your resources. You give those away, Engage with me. Follow me. Over and over you see this posture of God converting people from their idols and converting them to Him. We see it throughout Scripture. And the reason I think money for many of us has become our God is because it's where we begin to find our security. We find our security in our money. Our bank account our job, our income. Our security is no longer found in Christ, it's found in our ability to provide for ourselves. Or we find our freedom in our money. It allows us to provide for ourselves, it allows us to make our own choices, it allows us to have freedom not to depend on anyone. I don't need the community around me, I don't even need God around me because I can take care of my own things. I have freedom. Freedom that money provides I think money also, for some of us, provides a sense of power. There's a sense of strength. That I actually can use my money to influence people. I can use my money to have people make decisions for me. We even allow our acceptance or our status, maybe a different word for that would be our identity. Our identity is found in our possessions in our money, our resources. We no longer view ourselves as sons and daughters of a king. We view ourselves rather as people either have or have not a certain amount of resources. And so money suddenly becomes this God, this idol, this thing that separates me from this relationship with God. That's why Martin Luther made this statement a long time ago that there are three conversions necessary. The conversion of the heart, the mind, and the purse. See, the natural default of all of us, the natural default of me, is to say, no, I've been converted from a need for money. I've been converted. I'm, I'm not greedy. I mean, it's obvious I'm not greedy. And we start to go through these, what I would call, like false metrics for how we determine whether we're greedy or not. 
I can't be greedy. Look at the car I drive. I thrift shop. I can't be greedy. Or look, look at the house I live in. It's really small compared to most people's houses. Or, or my income isn't that great. I, I mean, I've lived my entire life as an adult and have needed to be on government assistance. But hey, listen, I'm not greedy, right? But the answer is no, maybe I am. Maybe what I'm doing is judging based on others around me and not judging based on my own heart. What are my own motivations? What are the things that I really hold dear? Who really is my God? Here are a couple questions that might help us get to the bottom of it a little bit more. I have often made in my own life, and maybe you have too, this statement, I don't care that much about stuff. I don't. I don't care that much about stuff. So here's a question. How often do you think about stuff? How often do you toggle back and forth between Craigslist and eBay and Uncrate and Steep and Cheap and whatever particular site is the one that you're most intrigued with? How often do I think about getting the latest, the newest, the best? How often do I look at the iPhone 4S and think it's the iPhone 5? <laughs> I mean, there's all, in us, there's this thing where I think sometimes we actually say we're not dominated by it, but maybe we're more dominated by it than we think. Or how about another one? How do you figure out your budget? Do you figure out what your needs are and what your wants are, and then you figure out what's left, and then you can figure out what you can give? Or do you start with what you can give and then figure out how you're going to do the rest? If you get more money in, does your cost of living increase or your giving increase? I mean, these are questions that I think begin to get to the very heart of where is my posture? Is it leaning toward God or is it leaning toward greed? Because I don't think you can say you're right in the middle. You're either leaning one way or the other. And so he says, don't lean on the unshakiness of riches. Instead, lean on God. Next phrase in the Scripture is this, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You realize that all we have is a gift. Your very breath is a gift. Your food is a gift. Your clothes are a gift. Your roof is a gift. In fact, Jesus, kind of cutting off people at the pass in Deuteronomy 8, said this. Some of you, you're going to get to the promised land. You're going to settle in. You're going to have a nice house. You're going to have a nice vineyard. You're going to have everything you need. You're going to look around and go, man, look at what... I have provided for myself. Look at what the strength of my hands has done. And he says this in Deuteronomy 8. No, 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 no. Remember the Lord, the one who gave you the power to have that ability, the one who provided you with the resources, the one that even gave you the land to which you're going to. Forget not me, he says. Why? Because all of life is a gift. The text says that He richly provides. He lavishes on us. He's generous with His giving. Henry Nouwen uh, hung out with a, a group of people in South America for a season of time. 
a really poor group of people, and he had this to say. What I claim as a right, my friends received as a gift. What is obvious to me was a joyful surprise to them. What I take for granted, they celebrate in thanksgiving. What for me goes by unnoticed became for them a new occasion to say thanks. And slowly, I learned. I learned that everything that is, is freely given by the God of love. All is grace. Light and water, shelter and food, work and free time, children, parents and grandparents, birth and death, it is all given to us. Why? So that we can say thanks. Thanks to God, thanks to each other, thanks to all and to everyone. See, all of life is a gift. I think the opposite posture of gift is entitlement. So we either have this idea that everything that's been given to us is a gift. It's all been entrusted to us. I own none of it. I possess none of it. I borrow all of it. That it's all God's and He graciously gives it to me. Or I take on the posture of entitlement. Entitlement is where I begin to move things from the category of want I go, I really want that, and suddenly I begin to go, no, no, I really need that. And then I go, no, 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 I don't just need it, I deserve it. It's my right. That's what entitlement moves us to. And I think a spirit of entitlement fosters that greed that's all around us. Will Williman made this statement, considering the full sweep of the Christian tradition, one would have to conclude that the most profane word we can utter is the word mine. That's what entitlement does. Is it moves us from this posture of gift to a posture of saying, it's mine. I'm entitled to it. The text goes on to say, they are to do good. They are to do good. They are to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Ready to share. Literally means prepared to give. Ready to distribute. That's the idea of saying, I'm going to do good by giving away. I'm going to do good by being generous. I'm going to have a posture that's ready to give. One that says, I'm going to be generous. I'm going to be liberal with my resources. I'm going to be ready at a moment's notice to meet a need. That's what the text is saying. Charge the people. Command the people. Be ready to give. Be prepared to have that posture. And perhaps this is the most difficult part of where stewardship comes in. Because I think in many of us, there's a heart to give, a desire to give, but I think a lot of times where we lack is a readiness or an intentionality to give, a purposefulness to give, to say, I am going to live in such a way that it is possible for me to give. And I think the only way that's truly possible, and maybe what he's getting at in this particular section is that You have to live a life or embrace simplicity. At some level, simplicity has to be a part of the equation if we are being called to be generous. 
Here's a little definition of simplicity. Simplicity is eliminating the things that prohibit the future your generosity could create. Simplicity is eliminating the things that prohibit the future your simplicity could create. It's an act of creating space for generosity. And here's where I think the intentional part comes in. Because I can't create space for generosity if I'm focused on consuming or acquiring. I don't think I can create space for generosity if I live in crippling debt. It's impossible. Some of us are perhaps not prepared to give simply because of the decisions we make not to. Now, not to not give, but we make decisions to get, which implies not giving. Make sense? Some of us can't give simply because we just took on a new car payment. Some of us can't give because we just decided to make another decision that puts us in further credit card debt, which puts us further behind, which means we just can't, at this point, give. He says, be ready to share. All throughout the scriptures, we see these examples of New Testament believers doing it. Everyone points to the passage in Acts chapter 2. It's like one of those favorites where it says, like, everybody had everything in common. Everybody was sharing with one another. Here's what I find so interesting about that passage. We talk about sharing resources. We talk about giving resources. But the text says this. They gave to everyone who had need. And then what did they do? They went out and sold all their crap and gave more. Do you see that? In the text it says they went out and sold. When was the last time you said, I need to give more, so much so that I should sell stuff to give stuff? That's, if you point at that passage as a passage that speaks to generosity, let's get the garage sale going. Because that's what they did. Or you look at the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 where it says that out of their extreme poverty, they welled up in, what's the word? Rich generosity. Out of their extreme poverty, they welled up in rich generosity. I think being simplistic means you have to make an intentional decision to lessen your spending power. You actually need to make a decision to lower your earning potential you might have to make a decision to go without. C.S. Lewis said this, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charities' expenditure excludes them. Let me read that last phrase again. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do simply because the decision to give money away hampers our ability to do them. 
Be generous. Be ready to share, the text says. The last phrase is this, Thus, storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. See, Paul gets down to this last verse and he says, listen, if you do all these things, if you have all of these postures, if you move through this progression with your resources, here's the outcome. One stores up for themselves a foundation for the future and in the present takes hold of the life that is truly life. See, I hear lots of people who express a desire to live life to the fullest, but I rarely hear that in that statement that giving is what gets you to that outcome. Paul is saying that. You want to live life to the fullest? Well, here's something you can do. Give stuff away. Be generous. Give money. And you will have the life that is fully life. I think we sometimes live life as if our daily decisions have no impact on the future. And what Paul is speaking into is that not only does it have an impact on the future, but the kinds of people you are becoming every single day truly matters. It truly matters whether you will experience life to the fullest now based on how you live. Let me kind of wrap up all of Paul's three verses by giving a couple pieces of application. All right, I'm going to make a couple suggestions for every posture. All right, first posture is this: Are we leaning? Is our posture leaning toward God, or is it leaning toward greed? Here are my suggestions. Number one: Give. Plain and simple, give. If you want to destroy the grip of greed on your heart, if you want to get rid of anything that is holding on to you, the easiest and most productive and best way to do it is actually to give. I mean, the most truest expression of who your God is is how much you give and how often you give. Because where your treasure is, is there your heart will be also, right? You want to know if you're leaning this way or this way? Very simply, look at your giving. Look at what you give away. So my first recommendation is give. My second recommendation is this. Do some show and tell. Here's what I mean by show and tell. Um, my wife and I do are part of the premarital program here. So you may do premarital with us or not, depending on Asia in the back. All right? Everyone comes to Asia, and then he filters it out. So if you come and you do premarital with my wife and I, there will come a part where, after we've talked about all kinds of other areas, preparing you for marriage, we will talk about money. Plain and simple. And here's how it works. We sit down across the table from you. We turn our sheet of paper around, and we say this. This is what I make. This is what I spend. This is what I save. This is what I give. This is what I make. This is, and I go right through it. Now, typically, the look on the face is like, why are you showing this to us? Right? Like, we're not supposed to talk about what people make. We're not supposed to know how people spend it. 
it's not really our, our, you know, it's not my thing, it's not your, no, let's just like all have, no. Listen, you want to not have greed, have a grip on your heart, open your books. I, I can't make certain purchases simply because I know a month from now I'm going to go, hey, look. Look. Any questions? I mean, think about it. If you went into small group and people in small group knew what you made, knew what you gave, knew what you spent, and you made a decision and you walked in, somebody's going to ask you about it. It'll happen. As long as you're open. My recommendation, what is there to hide? If you feel good about where you're at, if you feel good about what you're giving, if you feel good about the resources that are 100% God's and none yours, and you can just distribute it the way that you feel He's calling you to, then there's no reason not to show it, right? I'll say this. Anybody that actually wants to sit down and walk through that, I know that anyone on staff would be more than happy. There are other leaders in this church that I know that would be more than happy to walk through with any of you. If you want to say, let's, let's really get down to the heart of this. Let's get down to the heart of this. Okay? Second, second area. Gift or entitlement. Gift or entitlement. Here's my recommendation. Give. You can see where we're going with this, right? Give. Giving is a clear indication that I understand that God has entrusted the resources to me. That's why I give. See, what we try to do is we make it about the 10%. Was it 10% back then? Was it 10% now? What percentage is it now? No, 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 no. It's about 100%. Right? It's about 100%. Some of you go, no, it's about the 10%. It's not really about the 90%. Well, if that's the case, the American average means it's really about the 2.3%, not about the 97.7%. Right? Wrong. It's not. I mean, I've heard it said one time that God judges how much you give on how much you keep. Ugh. Right? Because it's all His. I think my challenge to you is this. Instead of asking the question, how much should I give? I think we all need to change the question to this. Why should I keep? What would motivate me to keep this money? Put the burden of proof on what you keep, not on what you give. We want the burden of proof to be on what I give. Oh, well, you know, why should I give X amount of money? Who should I give X amount of money to? No, 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 no. Flip it. Kingdom always flips it. Kingdom thinking always flips it. Kingdom thinking then asks the question, what should I keep? What is reasonable to keep? What is needed to keep? I think that needs to become the question. But I know some of us, we we begin to ask that question and what crops up in our hearts I'm telling you because I've been there many, many times. What crops up in our hearts is, what if I give that and He doesn't come through? What then? Right? Right after the passage that says, give all, God desires a cheerful giver, continue to give, this verse comes up. It says this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And this is the part I love. And God 
is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He who supplies seed for the sower and the bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing, giving, and increase the harvest of your righteousness. What he's saying is, listen, you're giving, it's on me. You give, I prove myself. I will say all the time, all in everything, you just give all, all sufficiency, all time, so that in all things, all good works, you may abound, and I will provide everything you need. It's an issue of trust, right? It's give. Give. Recognize it's a gift, not an entitlement. And then last but not least, the posture of being prepared. Is your posture one of being prepared? Here's my suggestion. Give. Give. Take a posture of simplicity and give. This might sound shocking, but nothing prepares you to be good at giving like giving. It's true. Anytime you give and you experience the benefit of giving, it causes you to want to give more. I've not met a single person who's given and seen God move in a a remarkable way that didn't turn around and want to do it again. I've never seen it happen. Because that's the way it works. It's the way kingdom use of money works. Not only is it a clear act of obedience in the Scriptures. I think it's a calling that all of us have been given. I heard a phrase some time ago, and maybe you've heard this phrase too. Uh, People were starting a campaign, and they were saying, man, we, we need to change the world with our resources. We've got to do something to change the world with our resources. And they came up with the tagline that said, make poverty history. Do you guys remember that tagline? Let's do all we can to make poverty history. I would like to scrap that tagline because it hasn't worked and change it and to say this. You want to see a difference? Make greed history. You get rid of greed and the rest will come. You get rid of greed and we have more than enough to supply all the needs. But it starts with our posture. Let's pray.